Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with episode 559 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened in the world of NXT and AEW over the last week, a truncated week for AEW with no collision episode due to NBA All-Star Weekend, so three hours of AEW, two hours of NXT, and we're going to break it down all for you by the time we wrap up today's episode. Before we get into all of it, as always, to kick off this podcast, allow me to remind you that getting over is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show. Again, Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash Getting Over. Sign up, you will get Bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every week, along with exclusive news posts on Fridays. Again, that is buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, we do have a ton to get into on today's show. I did want to provide a bit of a scheduling update before we get into the entirety of the show. Let me first remind you that there is a WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate preview waiting right now for you in the podcast feed ahead of Saturday's show. And of course, we will be back Saturday morning here on the East Coast of the United States with your WWE Elimination Chamber instant analysis. But next week in this exact space, we will have your AEW Revolution Ultimate preview. And then next weekend, we will have your AEW Revolution instant analysis for Sting's retirement match, at least That's what we expect to happen on that show. So a ton of stuff coming up in the world of getting over. But today's show, of course, is focused on NXT and AEW. So let's just get right into it. I don't really have that much to say off the top. It was a pretty standard week for both shows, again, with the exception of Collision not airing Saturday night. So let's kick it off with NXT. We'll move to AEW next. As always, we have timestamps in the episode description. So if you only want to hear about one brand or not the other, whatever the case might be, you can check the description, find the timestamp. As always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Kicking it off with NXT, Carmelo Hayes returned to an empty barbershop as highlights were shown of all his segments there with Trick Williams in the past. Melo said he's alone, but not lonely because he has his pride after standing up for his principles. Hayes said he didn't snake out his boy to get his spot and get too big for his boots like Williams did. Melo wanted to lift Trick up with him, only to see Williams try to like usurp him for the number one spot. Yet Hayes said he won't be second to anybody. Melo said it takes being ruthless to remain on top, and he knew he had to turn before Trick did it to him. Hayes told him that his 15 minutes is up. Then he called out Ilya Dragunov for the title. Dragunov later cut a promo at Hayes, saying he fingered him from the start. Ilya called him a coward and a rodent, agreeing to fight him at Roadblock for the title as long as they meet face-to-face next week so he could take his soul. 
This was a perfect promo from Mello. He's now two for two in segments coming out of Vengeance Day. And it really made complete sense logically. Mello wove the tale extremely well. I do hope they keep Trick out for a couple more weeks so this can really build before Stan and Deliver. I'm also extremely curious to see how it transpires. Are we gonna get a triple threat? Mello beating Ilya for the title first with a quick change to Trick? Or is it a non-title match? If so, who does Dragunov fight in Philadelphia? Still plenty of questions, despite the storyline hitting well on Tuesday night. Ren Sinclair fought Roxanne Perez backstage before the match. Roxy said Ren reminded her of herself, just happy to be there in NXT. Only Perez has since realized that's not going to cut it because opportunities that you work your entire life to earn can just get handed away to other people, including to main roster superstars, referring to Shotzi. Roxy said she learned that only she is responsible for her station, and then she told both Lyra Valkyria and Shotzi to watch her match closely. This was probably like a top two promo that Roxanne Perez has cut in NXT. Perez worked her heel side of the match pretty well. Sinclair was in Gators colors, which popped me. Uh, I'm just happy she got rid of the denim, to be honest with you. Roxy hit Pop Rocks, but took her out of the cover and locked in a crossface for the submission victory. Sinclair did well enough here, but this was all about getting Perez's new persona over. It's already working, I think, extremely well for her. Not that dissimilar from what happened with Braun Breaker, though that was a heel turn, and this is more of like an edgy tweener. Still, it was a good look for Roxy, and it's a refresh that she's badly needed after two years. It remains ridiculous how well she performs and how much presence she already possesses in the ring. The promo and character work, that's coming along, and it's coming along quick. Prodigy is just a truly accurate nickname for her. And the ceiling at this point, I would say is almost unlimited. Uh, Metaphor commiserated backstage with Noam Dar concerned over no quarter catch crew coming up after the Heritage Cup. Charlie Dempsey tried to give another lesson on the cup, but Dar stopped him cold. They finally informed Noam that they're gonna get their challenge for it next week. And the competitor will reveal himself once they're all in the ring. This is being deemed a catch clause, which seems like a huge unfair advantage, but I digress. Uh, decent segment overall. Dar's confusion over the catch clause. It reminded me of that scene in Office Space where he's like, PC load letter. What the F does that mean? So thought that was pretty funny. Kalani Jordan fought Lash Legend. Kalani got straight booted out of midair and ate a standing splash. Lash then centered to the canvas with power, only for Kalani to get knees up on a second attempted splash. Jordan actually flipped out of a powerbomb, hitting a flying hurricanrana and a step over spinning heel kick. Jakara Jackson distracted while Jordan was in the corner. And Legend hit a choke slam off the second rope for the win. Then Keanu James and Izzy Dame entered. Kalani flipped out of a two-on-one attack and escaped. Good work both ways. Jordan is clearly improving in the ring while getting to show her smarts in the post-match. I thought that was pretty important. We spent time last week having a conversation about Jada Parker. And I believe her ceiling might be higher overall. But Lash Legend is ready for NXT main event elevation right now. She's every bit capable to hold the women's title. And I could totally see Roxy taking her out as like an underdog down the line. I'm extremely curious to see what happens with Lash after WrestleMania weekend. And this is just a shock to me because again, if you remember like nine months ago, we were talking about Lash legend and Nikita Lyons in kind of the same context where they may have the physical tools, they may have a good look or style or whatever, but in the ring, it just doesn't work. And I know Nikita was injured and now she's apparently injured again, which probably speaks to her long-term career you know, potential here. But Legend has used these last nine months and she was off TV for most of them to just straight up 
get better. And every single time we see her on TV, she's proving that. Uh, so the women's championship was the main event of the show. Lyra Valkyria against Shotzi. So Valkyria checked on Tatum Paxley backstage with Tatum still hurting, but happy that Lyra had her back last week calling her a hero. Valkyria made Paxley promise not to interfere in the title match, and she promised her a special surprise if she manages to abide by that one rule. So Tatum enthusiastically agreed. This was the main event. Now, we all knew coming into this that Shotzi tore her ACL in the match. And the way it happened was just so ridiculously sad. Shotzi had Lyra draped through the ropes outside and did a simple, light, relatively low impact jump to the floor with the idea of doing a DDT on the ring apron. You could tell she tore the ligament immediately upon landing, but her knee didn't buckle. It wasn't hyperextended, nothing like that. Shotzi just landed on it normally and somehow was in immense pain. It looked completely routine, innocuous, and yet immensely unfortunate. Absolutely sucks for her. NXT went to commercial and she was getting help to the back picture in picture while we waited for the show to resume. Ava entered saying Shotzi was no longer clear to compete and the match was now an open challenge. So Lash came out given she was in the prior match and presumably warmed up already. Because of that, this was a developmental match that was basically called Live in the Ring. Commentary made a good point about Roxy probably being pissed watching because she wasn't able to take advantage of the open challenge. So then we saw, and this certainly was not planned, Perez flip out backstage after learning that this was happening. She had clearly just gotten out of the shower and wiped off all her makeup. So it was just pretty cool the way they weaved that into this after the fact. Legend chokeslammed and pump kicked Valkyria, but Lyra flew off the top rope with her old splash finisher to retain the title a second time in one night, the first obviously due to referee stoppage. I know that Lyra had to win as the champion and they couldn't really make the finish too complicated given Lash's inexperience and the fact that it was done on the fly, but it was really unfortunate that Legend lost the title match squeaky clean when, as I just said a bit ago, ideally she should be getting built into a legitimate number one contender in short order. Now, maybe they pushed that off a little bit. Shotzi did say on Instagram that she was about to go on a run in NXT, which leads me to wonder whether she was actually supposed to win the title here. That would have made a lot of sense given Perez's comment about the main roster, and it would have created a big match, Perez and Shotzi, for Stand and Deliver. So we're going to have to see exactly what direction they're going to go, but it's going to be curious to see what happens with the division and the title. There's not exactly a no-doubter number one contender other than Roxy, because Legend lost, Cora Jade is injured, Keanu James recently lost a title match, Fallon Henley's a babyface, Maybe Blair Davenport, that could absolutely work. You could also get another main roster star to come down. Maybe someone who's not being used re regularly, Zaya Lee, something like that. Just a real unfortunate situation for Shotzi, but credit to everyone because they did the best they could in this situation. The Wolf Dogs hit the ring with Baron Corbin getting serenaded with You Deserve It chance. They did their good-natured contentious bickering between each other and walked into a Spear of Days chant, combining their finishers into a name. JCU interrupted ready to challenge now that they're back at 100%. The Wolf Dogs were the cool heels in this. Chase U was persistent, but Nathan Frazier and Axiom stormed out saying they were the true top contenders. Duke Hudson made fun of Frazier's accent. Corbin told them to figure out their own shit. Ava came out and she actually got her name chanted, which was really cool. She made the expected number one contendership match. It was a relatively boring segment. My biggest issue is that Corbin didn't say Wolf Dogs, which he promised he would say if they won the tag team titles. 
So they didn't deliver on like that one bonus promise that was fun or a fun part of them winning the championships. I did love that they played into the stupid IWC rumors of the Spear of Days nickname. Commentary called them Wolf Dogs multiple times, including at the end of the segment. I just wish it was better. I thought this could have been a far better segment than it actually was. Thea Hale backstage was upset that Riley Osborne had not texted her back after their Valentine's Day date. Ariana Grace was eavesdropping. As Thea explained, she played hard to get like JC Jane suggested. She wouldn't let him open the car door for her, stayed on her phone so that she didn't seem available to him. JC said that's not what she meant by hard to get. So Grace butted in saying that Thea clearly scared him away by not being open and reciprocating interest. Jane and Grace disagreed about how to handle the situation, but Ariana was obviously the babyface here, giving actual good advice as opposed to whatever bullshit JC was peddling. I found the roles they were playing here decently interesting, and this is now two weeks in a row where Jane has not seemed to have Hale's best interests in mind. There was a third Chase U girl, I guess, in this segment. She's a brunette. Her name is Jasmine Nix. And I want to spell this name for you because it is truly ridiculous. Ready? J-A-Z-M-Y-N-N-Y-X. An X, two Ys, and a Z. Apparently, she's a former footballer who played at West Virginia and then in Iceland professionally. Her real name is Jade Gentile, which itself sounds like a ridiculous NXT name. But I digress. We now have Jasmine Nix in NXT. Jane fought Grace uh, coming out of this backstage segment. JC twice distracted the referee trying to get help from the girls. Thea didn't realize she was supposed to do anything the first time, so JC got mad at her the second time. Jasmine realized that JC wanted help and hit Ariana with Jane getting the win. Then after the bell, Nix pushed Hale away from lifting Jane's arm, doing it herself with Thea looking really pissed off. JC seemed totally fine with Thea getting shoved aside, so it's clear there's going to be a friendship-based storyline here, possibly with Jane going back heel and Hale staying face. Given the catty comments between Jane and Nix in the prior segment, it seems like they're clowning Hale, similar to almost what Damage Control was doing to Bailey. We also had Chase U against Frazier and Axiom in that number one contendership I mentioned. The Chase U men passed the women exiting after the prior match. Jane gave Chase some lip, while Hale and Osborne had a moment with Thea still depressed over him. Hudson did a gut buster on Axiom while simultaneously doing a senton into Frazier. Axiom then counted Razor's Edge into a Huracarana and somehow hit Hudson with an avalanche Spanish fly. Jason Frazier then went into an extended counter sequence with Chase eventually pinning his shoulders to the canvas for the win. After the bell, the Good Brothers randomly attacked and all five guys got laid out. Uh, Hudson got hit with Magic Killer and that was pretty much the end of it. Pretty big pop from the crowd seeing them initially. The boys were out in the parking lot saying they would stay in NXT as long as they want. They wanted to separate the men from the boys. They called out Corbin for being a joke and suggested they'd be heroes for Breaker that the Steiner brothers were not. I didn't really expect too much from this match. It definitely over-delivered. Hudson did most of the work for Chase U, even though Frazier and Axiom were obviously the more impressive duo. The Good Brothers were a nice surprise. And if a team is going to take the titles off the Wolf Dogs, they would make a hell of a lot of sense to be that team. All the teams in NXT could benefit from running with them just a little bit. And since they've barely been used on the main roster since re-signing, this definitely works even if they're not the most exciting main roster stars to pop down there. You could even make an argument they're the least exciting main roster stars to pop down there. The promo in the parking lot was typical Good Brothers, set the stage nicely for their run. If they're going to do this each week, then I'm down for it being an extended tenure. Brooks Jensen fought Josh Briggs. This was like a classic 80s styles match from an aesthetic standpoint. 
baby face in light blue jeans with a mullet, cowboy boots all pissed off, heel in black jeans and boots with a chain, acting like an asshole. Jensen got a lot of offense early, but Briggs was on top talking shit late. Briggs hit a huge choke slam, almost South of Heaven style, except his legs went out from under him. That was a false finish. Jensen hit a spinning heel kick and suplex, but Briggs punched him in the face during a pin and followed with two clotheslines from hell. The second only caught the top of his head for the win. Briggs, whose mouth was busted open here, immediately picked Jensen off the canvas, hugged him, kissed the top of his head, saying, I did this for you, I love you. I enjoyed that. I like that they're doing a tough love situation and not a full-blown heel turn by Briggs because Jensen hasn't done anything particularly wrong to him leading into the match. The wrestling was okay. It reinforced what I've been saying about Briggs. He has a much higher ceiling between the two of them. He needs a name for this JBL-style finisher, and he needs to tighten up in some areas, but he can definitely be like a legitimate mid-card heel on the main roster eventually down the line. Fallon Henley was depressed and confused backstage in the locker room, wondering what has gotten into Briggs and Jensen. Hale was equally depressed, given everything that's gone wrong in her life, so they decided to take a walk together, with Henley calling back to an awful Valentine's Day last year. Commentary called Fallon a locker room leader, and the segment ended. This was actually, I, I know it sounds short and like unimportant, it was actually one of the best segments on NXT. It just plainly felt real. Nothing over-scripted or overacted. just two women finding a common bond over having a really shitty day. I told you all that Henley flashed majorly for me during the Tiffany Stratton feud, and this just seems to be continuing her improvement. It seems like we're probably gonna get Hale and Henley against Jane and Nick's at some point down the line, and that obviously will make a lot of sense. The North American Championship was on the line, Oba Femi defending against Lexus King. This opened the show and it was relatively short. King got his fair share of offense at the start. Mr. Stone came down still angry over the trash King talked to his kids last week. That led to Lexus shoving him outside the ring and the distraction gave Oba the opening for his pop-up powerbomb finisher. He looked pretty dominant uh, through the end of the match there. Even though King has lost a bunch to start his career, I still expected more from this. Not sure there was a reason to do a title match if Stone was just gonna distract. It didn't accomplish anything for Femi other than giving him another W, but he doesn't really need W's. He needs impressive W's. There was a D'Angelo family meeting with Stax and Adriana Rizzo. They were admitting their mistakes in losses last week. Tony D'Angelo took the blame himself, saying they've lost sight of the bigger picture. They're worrying about small fish like Chase U and OTM. They need to look for the bigger fish. He was serious, saying it was time to lead the family in a new direction and for him to truly be the Don of NXT. So that sounds like he's either going for the North American title or maybe the NXT title. Hopefully he loses the Guido style ring gear, gets into something a little bit more serious. It's okay to do an Italian mafia style family gimmick. It's just the corniness of it that needs to get factored out so that they can transition into something a little bit more serious and then maybe eventually even drop some of the mafia aspects of it and just be an Italian group or something like that. You're gonna have to, have this develop and change and adjust, especially if any or all of them ever get called up to the main roster. Very similar with Chase U. I don't know that that has main roster legs. Maybe it does just purely as a comedy gimmick, but you don't want D'Angelo family to just be comedy. You want people to take them seriously. So it's great to see they're moving in a more serious direction. I just hope that is reflected in their gear, their storylines and everything else going forward. Uh, like just as an example, Take Tony D'Angelo out of the tracksuit and have him work in slacks. Very easy. 
There was also a quick moment here that popped me. Tony put some lemon in his espresso, which makes it a Romano. And it's something very Italian American <laughs> for him to do that. So just seeing that happen as part of the segment popped me a little bit. Dijak still had Joe Gacy in his straitjacket inside a padded room. He was taunting him. Luca Crucifino somehow knew where they were, saying it was false imprisonment and against the law, but Dijak just pushed him away. So Gacy shoved his face into the glass, laughing, kind of like he's the Joker or something from Batman, and he drew a smiley face on the glass with his breath. This was completely illogical from the standpoint that a lawyer who has never interacted with either of them, and last time we saw him, was actually interacting with the D'Angelo family, would somehow be able to find Dijak holding Gacy prisoner in a random location. And if we put that aside and assume, okay, it was somewhere in the boiler room of the WWE Performance Center, surely police or staff would have rescued him in a situation like this. The inclusion of Crucifino just took me out of the segment. Better would have been for Luca to confront Dijak after the fact, having seen it on his TV, and said, hey, you cannot hold Gacy prisoner I'm going to file a lawsuit against you. Like, that is how you do something like this. The way it was put together just did not make a shred of sense. Ridge Holland did another sit-down interview. He said he can't get the stench of misfortune off of him, and it's unfair that Gallus could take him out with the chair, yet he's not allowed to do the same. Holland promised to apologize for his actions, even if no one cares, and address the situation next week. He said who he is with the chair is not who he is in everyday life. That point about no one caring, I'm not sure anyone does. And I'm not hating on Ridge because I actually think there's something to him. But this last month, everything they've done since he's returned to NXT, it has not worked for me whatsoever. There was a third version of the black and white text vignette. It said, quote, men deny their truth. I will be a mirror to it. Then a glass broke. There's like a red spotlight on it. Interesting that it was singular saying I, not we, which kind of flies in the face of my expectation then this would be Boa and Dante Chen. Maybe it's a repackaged Wendy Chu. I miss her on TV. Don't know what's up. Need to get her back on as soon as possible. I believe she's healthy now. It could also be unrelated to an Asian wrestler, even though the first proverb was, I believe, Japanese. So that was just an assumption we made coming out of that. It could also be Tama Tonga. We haven't heard peep from him since he left New Japan. There were rumors that WWE was at least somewhat interested. It really wouldn't make sense for him to go on the main roster. That could be a debut at Roadblock, Stand and Deliver, something like that. Here's an out of left field guess. Bo Dallas. And I only say that based on the glass shattering was kind of similar to what Bray Wyatt was doing with Uncle Howdy, except this was red instead of blue, but they weren't doing proverbs or sayings or anything like that. I guess we'll find out sooner than later, but color me intrigued. They got my interest here. So that was NXT this week. Not an episode with a huge amount of developments, but next week leading into NXT Roadblock and then certainly building for Stand and Deliver. Things are about to pick up over the next month or so, but for a two-hour television show, you know, we always say this with NXT. Did you leave after those two hours? Happy you watched it and were you entertained? And the answer in both of those cases was yes. So let's go ahead, move over to AEW where, as mentioned, it was a three-hour of TV week with no collision due to NBA All-Star Weekend. Because of that, there were nine matches held across three hours of TV. Only three of them had storyline build or relevance. That left us at 33%, which is the lowest mark 
in weeks. It should be better next week because of the go home for revolution. The positive is that some of the non-wrestling content, particularly on Dynamite, was the best part of the show and some of the best stuff AEW has done probably in the last month or so. Before we get into the full breakdown, let's also just discuss one news item. AEW made a front office hire this week, bringing aboard Jennifer Pepperman, who is a long-tenured member of WWE's creative team and is a close friend of Mercedes Monet. It was pretty obvious as soon as she left WWE that this was the plan. Seems like a situation where Pepperman coming aboard gives Monet some confidence that AEW will actually try to book the women's division, which it once again did not this week. Wouldn't be surprised if it's part of Mercedes agreeing to join AEW in the first place. Peppermint is well-liked, as far as I know. There were some internal issues with her in WWE, but nothing that had really surpassed the white-collar world, I guess is the best way I can put it. The workers in WWE, the talent seemed to like her. Haven't ever heard someone say a crossword about her. Only occasional things in some reports that were relatively unverified. So this should be a key talent ad for AEW, even beyond the women's division. She got a VP title, so she's supposed to have a significant amount of responsibility. It is kind of funny, though, the way AEW hires people. Like Cody Rhodes got QT Marshall and others. CM Punk got a steal. Um, the Young Bucks got Brandon Cutler and others. Mercedes gets Peppermint. I have only seen something like this happen in my business one time and to a much, much lesser level. And that's over a decade in my current job. But obviously this happens in sports franchises all the time. A general manager is hired. They bring along a certain number of people. A star player is hired. He has a friend he wants in the social media department. I mean, this isn't that abnormal, but there is certainly a trend of it with AEW. So let's go ahead and break down everything that happened across Dynamite and Rampage this week. The main event of Dynamite was Hangman Page hook Rob Van Dam against Samoa Joe, Swerve Strickland, and Brian Cage in a six-man tag team match. There was a Cage promo on Rampage saying Hook doesn't belong in AEW. Hangman got one on Dynamite trying to convince his partners that they had reason to care about this match. Page was on fire in this match. Commentary made a, quote, nobody gets higher than RVD quip that took Excalibur off his game. He started laughing. He had to catch himself. Hook took a pop-up powerbomb from Cage and house call from Swerve. Hangman leaped over Swerve for a buckshot lariat on Cage. Joe and Swerve teamed up to hurt Page but he powerbombed Swerve through the announce table. Joe countered a buckshot with a power slam. Hangman escaped the muscle buster. Hook suplexed Joe, and then Joe forced RVD to pass out in the coquina clutch. Lots of entertaining action for a six-man main event. The champion appropriately was the one who came out looking the strongest. This was the normal AEW, like, tornado-style action in a regular tag team match. It was a mess from a compilation standpoint. Why was RVD in this? Because he fought Swerve a couple weeks ago and lost clean? Like, there's no one else that has a problem with Mogul Embassy who could have been added from the active roster. Anyway, the big names all got to fight. The crowd loved it. That's a positive. On Dynamite, we also had FTR against John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli. The heels on Rampage said provoking them is stupid, and FTR is a benchmark they need to conquer as a tag team. There was a funny moment where Mox said they were so in sync, he and Claudio, and Claudio knew exactly what he was thinking at all times. And so Mox is like, hey, Claudio, what am I thinking? And Claudio goes, your wife's glutes. And Mox, his eyes opened wide. He sold the hell out of it. Then Claudio said, when you're good, you tell others. When you're great, they tell you. And FTR calling themselves top guys means they're no better than good. This was a fun segment. It was actually one of Claudio's best promos. Uh, now this match, the tag team match opened Wednesday night. FTR did the old assisted abdominal stretch trick 
Claudio got his hot tag and hit a double backdrop. BCC got an assisted pile driver on Dax Harwood at ringside. FTR later came back with a close range doomsday device and superplex splash combo, only for BCC to answer with the swing into a dropkick. Claudio and Dax then did stereo sharpshooters while slapping each other because all four guys were in the ring for an extended period. And I guess it didn't matter who was legal at that point because they were just, I think they were both the legal guys trying to submit people who were illegal. I I don't even really know. Then the bell rang for a time limit draw, just as FTR had mocks up for Shatter Machine. So the guys lightly brawled with a dozen folks running out to separate them. At one point, Claudio was just hugging Cash Wheeler. FTR was furious later backstage, making the expected revolution challenge. BCC showed up. They had to get pulled apart again, and the match was made. So we got high-quality wrestling, as one would expect from these four. The draw was a bit of a downer, particularly because it was the second in as many weeks, but I didn't mind it that much. And there were time cues, so the viewers were aware the match was coming to an end and a draw was a possibility. It was obvious before the opening bell that this was going to be a revolution rematch one way or another. It seems like the CMLL feud has shifted now to Mexico. I'm always of the mind, AEW, WWE doesn't matter. Giving away a pay-per-view match on TV like 10 days before the show is a bad idea. Hopefully, AEW adds something to this. Some stipulation, tornado rules, no time limit, steel cage, street fight, something. Because it has to be different from what we got on Wednesday. But they all did well. And does this match belong on a pay-per-view? It absolutely does. On Dynamite, Ric Flair backstage said he was disappointed that he hasn't been a bigger part of the picture and more involved in Sting's retirement, having not been around much the last month. Flair said he planned to explore his options and then knocked on the Young Bucks office door. My immediate thought seeing this was this is a total swerve. Flair is the dirtiest player in the game. The Bucks assume he'll side with them because he's disgruntled. Maybe they make him the special guest referee or a ringside enforcer. Flair ends up counting the one, two, three, four Sting at Revolution, gets to raise his friend's arm, and that's the final moment of his career. But it was interesting, and it was a unique twist on what's been a relatively mediocre storyline to this point. But those interesting twists continued because Darby Allen and Sting then got a taped promo that they said was live for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, Darby showed a photo of Sting with his kids who are the same age as the Bucks' children. Now, Sting said his father recently died and he was like a hero to him. So now he's questioning his own mortality, even though he's long felt invincible. He said he would bring everything he has left inside of him to revolution and it will be the fight of the Bucks' lives. This was not just Sting's best AEW promo by a mile, but one of my favorite things he's done in his entire AEW run. You could feel the real emotion of a guy facing the end of his career, dealing with a real-life tragedy, and putting those together in kayfabe to show himself filled with rage, but holding back from exploding until the match happens. Honestly, it might have been one of the best promos of his entire career. Some will say the flair stuff is unnecessary because it complicates the story for no good reason. The added element for me makes tons of sense as long as it's a swerve and the faces retain. I don't want the Bucks getting Flair's help to beat Sting in his last match. Now, of course, that creates another issue of Darby either finding a new partner or the titles getting relinquished and vacated when they didn't need to be involved at all here. But that's another topic for another day, depending what happens at Revolution. For now, these two segments, a couple of my favorite things on Dynamite. Uh, Also on Dynamite, with Daniel Garcia in the ring, Tony Schiavone announced that Adam Copeland is injured again, 
and unable to compete in his TNT title match at Revolution. So Garcia would take his place, which makes sense because they fought to a no contest last week. He got you deserve a chance and said the fans have stuck with him and helped him restore the feeling. My Lord, how many times are we going to hear that damn phrase? Garcia then promised to finish the job when he sees Copeland again. So Christian Cage interrupted, bringing up Garcia's father being dead and a loser alcoholic. Christian said he didn't want to be Garcia's opponent at Revolution. He wants to be his father. Garcia stumbled over himself, then said he'd put Christian in the ground right next to his dad. Nick Wayne ran down and immediately got put in a sharpshooter, literally five seconds. So Killswitch came down and got blasted with a steel chair by Daddy Magic. So I guess that's going to be a tag team match this weekend or at some point soon. It would be unbelievable that Copeland is injured again, except it's totally to be expected at this point. Garcia did himself well on the mic, though he still lacks that believability aspect I've mentioned before. Christian was fantastic. The dead father shit, look, it's super tired to me, but you can't deny that it's hot. People absolutely love it. He gave an address out during his promo, suggesting it was Garcia's parents' home. But if you Googled it, it's actually a cemetery in Buffalo. And that popped me as well. Does Christian like have an Excel sheet where he has the status of every wrestler's father in AEW? That way he knows if he happens to get into a feud with them, whether they're alive or dead or a deadbeat or whatever the case might be. It's ultimately a lucky positive that they did the no contest last week because Garcia is still a legitimate challenger for the title. And his line about putting Christian in the ground, that was a great exclamation point to a promo that was only so-so before that. On Dynamite, Tony Storm squashed a jobber using Deanna Perrazzo's Venus de Milo for the submission win. This after she did a bunch of moves on Mariah May during a weird backstage rampage segment. As Storm exited, Perrazzo entered for an unadvertised match with Madison Rain. It was advertised she would be in action, just not her opponent. She won that with an ankle lock submission, and that was a message to Storm. Each of them did the other submission. Before that, she dumped Rain straight on her head during like a flatliner type of move. And that was somehow chosen as the move of the night for like whatever sponsorship deal. I think it was Intuit TurboTax. What idiot made that decision that literally the worst move of the night was spotlighted a second time as the move of the night? Holy shit. That's the type of stuff that people get fired for. Tony missed a shot with her shoe and put in the ankle lock during a post-match attack. Storm then manically put on lipstick and Perrazzo sold the ankle. Perrazzo, sorry. This is the build for the top women's storyline in AEW. We used to be friends. We have the same tattoo. We're going to do each other's submission finisher. And we're going to beat jobbers and I don't want to call Madison Rain a no name because she's not, but we're going to beat a bunch of people in matches that don't matter whatsoever. Storm's going to squash them. And, you know, Prasa's going to rack up wins because she's a new talent. I mean, this is the top women's storyline in the company right now. That is one big pile of shit. And really, I'm not saying there's no other women's storylines because there are. There's some minor storyline, obviously, between Ruby Soho and Soraya. There's the storyline regarding uh, Chris Statlander and Willow Nightingale, though that's mostly with Stokely Hathaway. But that's all we got across all these shows, and it is just slim freaking pickings. The best part of this was a split-screen camera shot. They crossed paths like on the entrance ramp, and one side was in full color, and the other side was in black and white. But that was just credit to production. No one else, really. On Dynamite, Orange Cassidy fought Mike Bennett, Orange was backstage with a trainer listening to Renee Paquette run down a ton of matches and injuries that he's encountered recently. The ruling was that 
He's barely cleared to compete. Bennett straight punched Orange in the nuts. Cassidy could not capitalize on an Orange punch, so Bennett hit a pile driver. Orange came back with beach break for the win. He got an extremely strong reaction, maybe even more so than usual, I would say. Matt Taven and Roderick Strong attacked immediately after the bell. So Jake Hager randomly made the save. And literally five seconds later, I shit you not, five seconds later, Strong Hager was made for Rampage with a graphic already created on screen. Now, this matchup, Orange and Bennett, it made sense in storyline, obviously. But what did not make sense is that Orange just had a death match with one member of Undisputed Kingdom last week. Now he has a regular singles match with that guy's partner this week. Both of them non-title, despite Orange defending the international championship sometimes twice a week for months, all despite Strong already having his match set. That's just a major lack of consistency, though obviously that's not unusual for AEW. By the way, why did Hager save Cassidy? Other than him living in Oklahoma, there's really no other reason. So the match was fine. Now we're getting Hager and I think it's Taven uh, or Hager and someone else, one member of Undisputed Kingdom on Rampage. It's like, does anyone really want that? Does it matter? Is Hager now fully involved in this feud? It's just massively strange. Let's move to something positive. On Dynamite, Wardlow came out on his own saying he's been pissed for a year because he was the next big thing getting his name chanted longer and louder from city to city than anyone has been in decades. I mean, look, Wardlow was over, but that's blatantly false, though acceptable faulty heel logic. Wardlow said he's only been dragged down since then, and he should have been champion a long time ago, given he's the only true homegrown day one AEW megastar. I would argue they don't have any homegrown megastars, but I digress again. He said he's never even been given a title shot, and people should be fired for that. Wardlow referenced CM Punk, saying he beat him down harder than anyone in his career and his body is still falling apart. Then he referenced MJF and how he gave him an all-time beatdown. And then he recalled beating Samoa Joe. Wardlow said he's the best in the world, he's better than you, and you know it. And he's the most dangerous man as the uncrowned king of AEW because he's everything a world champion is supposed to be. Man, that promo was like a year overdue. Best promo of his career without any question. So much so that it actually made me care about him again. I didn't even care that he actually lost to Punk. I know he didn't say he beat him. He just said he beat him down, but he did lose that match to Punk. But it doesn't even matter. There was a moment in here where it felt like it might've been an entree. I hate to put this out there for Goldberg to show up and challenge him. And I'm not saying it's gonna happen. I don't have any news to that end, but why is he cutting this promo now when Joe Swerve and Hangman are fighting for the title? And even if Joe comes out with the championship, I don't necessarily know that they'd flip it over to Wardlow. Why are they doing it now? Why are they doing it without Adam Cole when Cole is supposed to be his manager and the, not manager, the person propping him up, I should say, to win the title and obviously the leader of Undisputed Kingdom. So I just have this weird feeling about Goldberg or someone else. I don't really know. It's probably not gonna happen. Don't fault me for putting it out in the universe. It was just curious that this was done in this way at this time. Most important is what he said here is largely true. Tony Khan has neutered Wardlow every single time he's ever gotten momentum. 
So that obviously needs to be avoided here. You rub me just right every week. Maybe not every week, but this week, Wardlow rubbed me just right. On Rampage, Sammy Guevara fought Jeff Hardy in a no disqualification match. Sammy's gear alluded to Jeff's armbands. It was booked as a no DQ match without any rhyme or reason, and it quickly became a TLC match for some reason. Hardy hit a twist of fate off a ladder. Sammy did a springboard cutter with a chair wrapped around Jeff's neck. Then Guevara did a swanton bomb off an extra tall ladder outside through a table. Allow me to remind you, this was a taped rampage, not a grudge match, let alone something that had any storyline context. Wasn't on a pay-per-view. They're just doing this on TV. Immediately after was Sammy's shooting star press. Jeff got knees up to block it. And Sammy kind of turned. His knee drilled Jeff in the face. Blood all over the canvas. After a camera cut, Guevara hit the GTH for the win. Powerhouse Hobbs then attacked him with a spinebuster and a world's strongest slam to end the segment. So the concept of booking this match was just ridiculous. And then the match continuing after Jeff had his head caved in was utterly insane. Now you may say, Silver King. Hardy was checked out and it was only ruled a broken nose, not a concussion. First of all, bullshit. But even if that's true, athletes lie all the time because they want to perform and concussions often do not show up immediately. The whole point of concussion protocol is to protect the performer from themselves. It was better to stop it or would have been better to stop it out of an abundance of caution and keep everyone healthy, especially given they had a post-match attack already scheduled that could have gone on exactly as planned, regardless of whether the match ended in a one, two, three or a referee stoppage. I just hated every single thing about this. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. On Dynamite, Don Callis with the family backstage reiterated everything he said last week about the Will Ospreay, Konosuke Takeshka match. He also said Hobbs would hurt a lot of people. I wasn't really sure what he was talking about there. Maybe I missed something. It was an unnecessary segment overall. Osprey will be on TV next week ahead of Revolution. On Rampage, the Bang Bang Scissor Gang fought Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, Satinam Singh, and Dark Order. Surprise, surprise, Singh did pretty much nothing in this match. The faces didn't even get their entrances, which is the best part of their gimmick. They did finisher spam. Billy Gunn got pushed into Jay White, knocking him off the apron. And he combined with his son for 310 to Yuma for the win. I don't really have anything for you guys on this one. They all had a taped backstage segment that aired on Dynamite, suggesting they mix teams. They're going to do a six-man match on Rampage. So another match with no storyline purpose in terms of the opponents. On Rampage, Willow Nightingale backstage was angry at Stokely Hathaway interfering and helping her match last week, helping her winner match last week. Chris Statlander said they should have had a team meeting before. Stoke has probably never cheated previously, and they'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Does she not watch the show? Does Willow not watch the show? Of course he cheats. He cheats all the time. He's a heel. On Rampage, Anna Jay fought Queen Aminata. There was a nasty running, sliding boot in the corner by Aminata, nasty in a good way. Then she escaped Queen Slayer and caught Anna with a headbutt for her first victory. That ended her losing streak. She got a nice response for the W and a handshake after the bell, and she was officially made All Elite. Aminata has done well in her role, even if the booking has been absolute shit. Again, another match that had no reason for happening. On Rampage, Soraya and Harley Cameron told Ruby Soho they forgive her. Ruby said that she's known Soraya is behind all the bad stuff that's happened to her, and she knows what's best for herself, and that is space. Harley then pulled out a spoon, called it a knife, 
and hit Soraya in the breast with it a couple times. I, I, I'm just telling you what happened. Then later, Angelo Parker gave Ruby a Valentine in an interview segment, saying he slipped her a note last week because it's the only way he could get her attention. He was about to ask her out when Soho did it instead. Obviously, he was thrilled. They met up for their date on Dynamite, and there was a funny moment with Ruby thinking Angelo had gotten her like a white SUV chauffeur, only for that to be Ric Flair arriving into the arena. So if Soho knew Sarai has been doing shitty stuff to her and trying to ruin a personal relationship, why aren't they fighting? This is 2024. Does Ruby not have a phone that Cool Hand could have texted her that same message? This was really rough stuff. I like the effort of the storyline way, way, way more than the execution of it. On Rampage, Private Party cut a backstage promo about being in the top five of the rankings. Have they even had enough matches for that to be the case? This came across like it was at a TNA or ROH or something. It accomplished nothing. And finally on Rampage, Dustin Rhodes and the Von Erics beat three jobbers in just under two minutes with a couple iron claws and final reckoning. The gimmick was Rhodes and Von Erich, both families teaming up for the first time in more than 40 years. It might've been cool if Dustin didn't look so strange with his getup and if the match mattered at all. The fans liked it though because, you know, Texas. So that wraps up AEW this week, obviously. As mentioned, it was only three hours of TV. Next week is the go home for Revolution. As of right now, what's being promoted for Rampage and Collision doesn't seem all that exciting or interesting or necessary for that Revolution build, but I don't doubt that the Dynamite is going to be really solid. Plenty of big matches, um, and obviously they're still building for big business coming out of that, where, by the way, I'm starting to come around to the idea that it's going to be more than mercedes Monet on that show, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be Kazuchika Okada. So we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. There's a teaser for you, but as we wrap up today's show, Allow me to remind you a little bit of the schedule. If you have not heard it already, we have your WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview in the podcast feed waiting for you on Saturday. As soon as that show goes off the air, sometime in the morning here on the East Coast of the United States, we will have a WWE Elimination Chamber Instant Analysis. Your regular WWE show comes next Tuesday. And then next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel, we will have your AEW Revolution Ultimate preview. You are not going to want to miss that. On the way out of today's show, allow me to hit you with some reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you get instant reaction audio to the four major TV shows each week and exclusive news posts every Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. We wrap up another great week here at Getting Over, but of course, we will be back this weekend, as mentioned, with your WWE Elimination Chamber instant analysis. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.